Greetings and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I am your host, Frank Zaffaro, and this, well, this is something a little different. It is a feature episode. Usually on these episodes, we feature a single author, but I wanted to do something a little bit different. Uh, So this is a triple shot. Uh, We're going to talk to uh, Sandra Wells, uh, who uh, is an author uh, out of Tennessee. Uh, Then we're going to talk to Coleman Keene, and he's an avid reader and a reviewer. Um, And then uh, we're going to finish off with a friend of the podcast, Scott Kakawa, who is a Hawaii-based author uh, who works in the uh, law enforcement field. Uh, In addition to that, we're going to hear from Lance Wright at Down Out Books, and he's going to highlight some April releases from the publisher. And we'll also get some book recommendations. Uh, This month, we'll hear from uh, Joseph Reed, Ryan Sales, and T.G. Wolf. All right, let's move into the first interview. Uh, this is Sandra Wells, who uh, writes out of Tennessee. Uh, there's a couple of unique or different things about her that you'll discover, including uh, how she wrote her books. The actual mechanics of it are uh, quite different than uh, most most writers I talk to. Uh, so without further ado, let's meet Sandra Wells. Well, hello, Sandra, and welcome to the show. Hello, and I'm glad that you having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, you know, one of the things we try to do here is uh, feature uh, all kinds of different authors in terms of genre and in terms of visibility and in terms of where they are in their writing journey, you know, from established writers to up-and-comers and brand-new writers and so forth. And so you would probably fall into the just getting rolling this last year category would you not yes that's right i started in march of this last year and i've written four books since march and i have four books published and i'm on my fifth right now writing the fifth yes uh uh-huh well, that's an excellent segue because uh, one of the things that uh, is frequently mentioned as a point of interest where you're concerned is the physical method that you actually write these books. Yes, I, I write them on my cell phone. Uh, one reason is because I always have it with me. If I have any thoughts or epiphanies or anything, it's right there in my hand and I can just open the book up and you know, jot it down. Uh, I don't write anything out longhand. I don't use a computer. It's just, this is a cell phone. That is unique. I don't know that uh, I've ever encountered anyone that, that goes about it that way. Um, for the actual narrative, I think uh, for notes, a lot of people probably use their, their device. Um, so you're, you're new to the game and what, uh, what, what should people know about you that from, from before you became a writer, before you started having anything published? Well, I was a graphic designer for, oh Lord, like 25 years. Uh, I had my own business called Portside Graphics in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina for 13 years. And I decided to move away from the beach, uh, just wasn't enjoying it anymore so I decided to move to Tennessee and I've been here in Tennessee for five years it's a beautiful state and I enjoy it whereabouts in Tennessee oh lord I live in a small town that is so minuscule it doesn't even have a red light we don't even have a stop sign (laughs) (laughs) it's called St. Clair Tennessee what's the largest or what's the closest city uh Rogersville would be the closest and it's about eight miles away. What's the closest city that somebody not in pencil, uh, not from Tennessee would know? Oh, my Lord. Uh, probably Knoxville. It's about uh, an hour away. You would probably know where that's at. So a graphic designer turned writer. Was this, was this a, you know, some people, they discover writing later on in life. And other people, they just wait until later on in life before they go and do what they've always dreamt of doing, which, which was it for you? Well, I always wanted to write a book, and I thought about it quite often, but I never had the time because, you know, it was my own business. I was working, oh, Lord, 60 hours a week, easy. That's an understatement. And I just didn't have the time. But once, uh, you know, settled down and uh, retired, I'm not a a spring chicken. (laughs) Uh, I had the time on my hands, and I thought, well, I'll just give it a try. And once I started, I haven't been able to stop. That's the best way I can put it. Yeah, it can be a little bit like crack cocaine uh, writing at times, I think, for, for people <laughs> who, have the, who have the addiction. 
Um, so it's interesting to me, you, you lived in South Carolina all that time, moved to Tennessee, and yet your books are set in New Hampshire. Well, I've lived a lot of places in my life and moved around quite a lot. And I actually lived in New Hampshire for four years back in the early 90s. I lived uh, in Barrington, New Hampshire. It was uh, about mm, half an hour up from Portsmouth. So I really fell in love with the area. It's a beautiful area. And I thought, uh, why not? Uh, (laughs) But uh, yeah, I moved. I was born in Bordeaux, France. And my dad was military. So I've lived in California and on Okinawa, Japan and all all over the place. Well, it sounds like uh, once you're done writing about New Hampshire, if you are, you've got some other places to choose from. Well, actually, my new book is going to take place on Ocracoke Island in North Carolina, off the, in the Outer Banks. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's, it's a really mm-hmm. cool place. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I haven't been to New Hampshire either, um, and that is where your your series takes place. Just like that was the first one, I believe. Yes, uh-huh. So what what is this series like? What it is what is it about? Well, I don't have the experiences that you do with law enforcement by any stretch of the imagination, but yeah, I I started writing a crime series and it's two detectives, Detective Carver and Detective Kelly G, and then just like that they um, have to stop a, a crazed stalker. Uh he's 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 uh stalking Kelly G. And he's killing off people who are close to her. So he, you know, even violates her home with surveillance equipment and all kinds of things like that. But I have other things going on, you know, on the side about a couple of uh, teenagers who uh, murder their own parents and things like that. And that book, that was my first one. And the whole series is about Detective Carberry and Kelly G. It continues in Nothing Else Matters and in Fatal Prediction. Now, are they an odd couple, would you say, or are they uh, a couple, or what? What? How is it? What is their relationship like? Well, actually, in the first book, just like that, Detective Carver's wife was killed off by the stalker, so he's single now. But him and Kelly G kind of have this thing, yet they don't have a thing. And uh, they, they, they flirt back and forth, but it's not a real couple uh, situation. Uh, she would like it to be that way, but she doesn't want to approach it. Because it's too soon? Well, yeah, because it's too soon and because they're partners. So, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't really work out most times when you date somebody you work with. <laughs> this is very true, but it does work out when you're trying to create tension in a book. So that's a good thing. Yeah, well, they flirt around a lot, and, uh, you know, when women flirt with him, she kind of gets out of shape about it. <laughs> so there's a little jealousy there. Oh, yeah, there's definitely something there. So, and sw- swinging back around to your process, I-, I think most writers hearing you that you compose this on your phone um, would just be scratching their head and, and think it's just uh, so different from the from the norm. Um, what is there anything else about your process that you think is uh, different than, than a lot of other writers? Well, a lot of the writers that I've, I've come to know in the last nine months, they, they talk about they have all these processes where they'll play certain records and drink certain wines and and, uh, you know, sit down and write so long and then take a break and write the same amount. They have all these processes that they go through. And I don't do any of that. Uh, uh, you know, I don't have a certain shirt I wear when I write or anything. I just, when it comes to me, I sit down and I open it up. I have Word on my uh, cell phone. And I open up my document in Word, and I write until I'm done writing, and then I close it. And uh, just like I said, I have my cell phone everywhere I go, and it's always right there. So anytime I think of anything, I start, you know, writing it down. And it may be five minutes, it may be two hours. I just never know. Well, I'd say that's your process then. Yeah. You can share that with the wine drinkers and the shirt wearers, and uh, they can be jealous. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Some of them have really odd things that they do. You wouldn't believe it. <laughs> I think I would, actually. <laughs> and uh, a couple, uh, they're like, 
yeah, I've been writing this book for four years now, and I think in about six months I'll have it done, and I think, good luck. <laughs> wow. Well, that is one of the fascinating things about this art form is how differently everybody approaches it and how different everybody's process is and how sometimes you can put two books side by side and they can seem very similar, but the way that they got there is just so radically different because uh, the, the author's processes are different. Uh-huh. I agree. So you said you are working on a new one? Uh, yes, I am. And uh, it's it's going away from I'm, um, giving Detective Kelly G and Detective Carver a break. I'm uh, not going to be writing a crime book this time. Actually, this one, like I said, it's going to take place on Ocracoke. And a lady moves there and buys a local bar. And the ghost of Blackbeard appears and just kind of turns her life upside down. <laughs> yeah, we think it would. So, uh, he's he's going to be, you know, hanging out with her through the entire book. So I'm, I'm writing it now and, and I'm, you know, happy about the way it's going. I think it's going to be pretty good. So I'm, maybe I'm going out on a limb here, but are we talking about a comedy then? Uh, it's, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it would be like a comedy, I would say. Yeah, it, it's definitely, like I said, it's not a crime book, so I'm going away from my normal and uh, trying something new. But as you know, Blackbeard, you know, he, he died off the coast of North Carolina, and he haunted all the inlets in, in Ocracoke and things, so it, it's it's pretty appropriate, you know, where, where it's happening. Yeah, when I was a kid, I had a, one of those, like, Reader's Digest uh, hardcover books that had, like, tales of the americana in it and there was a big spread on pirates and one of them was blackbeard and that and and so it's probably just legend but according to that book anyway uh when he was killed it was pretty gruesome and it, uh well do you are you familiar with that story i uh, supposedly they threw his body into pamico sound and he swam so many times around the ship yeah. that they his headless his body head on, a, on a pike <laughs> they posted it put his head on a pike and and had it, but you know, and it, that's, ye- that's and it yelled at his body <laughs> as it was swimming. <laughs> you know, I mean, which I don't think is like the physics of that don't quite work out, but it's a cool story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, a chicken when he, he cut his head off, you know, I mean, but he's not. Yeah, a but chicken. it doesn't go bark, 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 bark while it's running <laughs> no, around. No. You know, so. Yeah, he supposedly wore candles in his beard too, and somehow or another, I highly doubt that. <laughs> Uh, Well, folks, the author is Sandra Wells. The series is a New Hampshire crime series. It's got four installments right now. It's on a pause, but uh, she's working on uh, something completely different uh, with Blackbeard. Um, Sandra, if people want to get just like that or or any of the books in this series, where should they go? Uh, They should go to my publisher, Breaking Rules Publishing, and uh, search my name, Sandra Wells, Breaking Rules Publishing, And just search my name and my books will pop up. And uh, my new book, uh, Before Dawn, uh, came out in January. So it's the newest in the installment. All right. Well, uh, four books is an excellent start on a series. That's for sure. Um, Sandra, I want to tell you thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. All right, folks, there you go. Sandra Wells. And uh, like I said, kind of an interesting method for writing. It's always uh, uh, fun on this show to talk to, you know, high profile established writers, journeyman writers, and then uh, newer writers who are or maybe uh, just starting out or are early in their writing journey. Um, you get such different perspectives and it's uh, it's pretty fascinating. All right. Well, let's hear from the sponsor of the show, Down and Out Books. Down and Out Books is a mid-sized publisher of crime fiction, most of it at the darker and grittier end of the spectrum. You can find out more about them at downandoutbooks.com. Uh, that's downandoutbooks, all spelled out, dot com. Uh, but uh, you can hear directly right now from Lance Wright, who's going to share what's hot in April. Hey, Frank. We have several books to talk about this month, so let's get to it. The second book in Colin Campbell's Vince McNulty series, Tracking Shot, has the ex-cop working as a technical advisor for a production company in Boston when, while shooting on location on a courthouse set, a gunman rushes in and kills several of the actors and crew. 
did he mistake the set for a real courthouse or was his target really the production? Later in the month is a new anthology, Jukes and Tonks, edited by Michael Bracken and Gary Phillips. These stories introduce you to many sinners and a few saints, love begun and love gone wrong, and all manner of unsavory endeavors. We round out the month with the third in Vincent Zandri's Dick Moonlight PI thriller series, Blue Moonlight. This entry set in Florence, Italy. We'll see you again next month, Frank, with more titles from Down and Out Books. Well, thanks, Lance. There you go. Some great recommendations to start the show. Uh, we'll get some more great recommendations uh, later on as well. Um, if you like uh, dark and gritty crime fiction, uh, certainly Down and Out Books is a great place to find a slew of it. A writer's perspective is one thing, um, but everybody writes to be read. And uh, occasionally on this show, we hear from readers. Uh, and in this case, a super reader and a super reviewer, uh, Coleman Keen. Now, Cole is uh, based in the UK, uh, and he has a blog, uh, Cole's Criminal Library, where he reviews all the books that he reads, uh, and occasionally films or TV shows as well, but mostly uh, books and mostly crime fiction or related fields. He's kind of in that general area. Um, and I just think it's fascinating sometimes to talk to the people who are the intended audience of what we all write uh, and get their perspective on things. Uh, so Cole was uh, gracious enough to agree to come on the show, uh, and let's go ahead and meet him. Well, hey, Cole, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Frank. Thank, thanks for having me on. Well, you have read a ton of books. I don't know how you find the time. And uh, you've been reviewing them since 2012 on Cole's Criminal Library. Um, it, did you always want to review books or was it just a matter of you were reading so many you thought maybe you might as well start telling other people what you thought of them? Pretty much. I think um, what happened was a couple of occasions I picked up a book and I was probably 30, 40 pages in and I thought, I've read this before. And it was frustrating and I never used to record what I wrote down at all. So then I thought, well, Maybe I just need to, as, as a sort of aid memoir, um, just help me out, you know, and then I can look back in future and, and think what I thought of that. Did I like it? Did I enjoy it? What worked? What didn't? And then it, it, it was initially for my own purposes, and I suppose to a degree it still is, but if if other people gain something from it, that works for me as well. Well, people can find that uh, at, uh, like I mentioned, Cole's Criminal Library. Uh, it's a blog on blogspot.com. How many books a week do you think you uh, you get through? Probably two to three, but it kind of depends on length. Last year, I had a good year. I read, managed to get, get through about 190. I think I tend to favor shorter page counts, more succinct novels, Um novellas not really a massive fan of anything that stretches to yeah 300 400 plus pages i will make an exception so with a title like uh, cole's criminal library um we're obviously talking about crime fiction but that's a pretty broad spectrum um is there a particular subgenre that you prefer no no it's it's, it's across the spectrum i did actually um a bit of a technical dinosaur but i did recently get an upgrade on my phone and i managed to get um an audible app which allows me to kind of read while driving commuting sometimes at work so i'm kind of like getting extra extra reading time multitasking shall we say you know i can i can use it walking and exercising so i think i haven't done the check on numbers but probably the audible aspect of my reading probably increased it by maybe 25% last year. Yeah, audiobooks are fantastic. Between uh, audiobooks and podcasts, uh, I listen to a lot during the week. I think um, I've kind of steered clear of podcasts because I'm sort of I'm buried by a deluge of books anyway. So I've, I've, I think... Hmm, 
how how to balance your time and make the best use of it. And uh, I kind of think if I'm not reading, I'm wasting time, which uh, my uh, my family might have something to say about that. Has it always been crime fiction for you as your, as your favorite genre? I suppose, like a lot of teenagers, I, I um, you grow up kind of reading horror fiction, and your Dean Koontz and your Stephen King and what have you. And then I think probably early 90s, I saw um, an Elmore Leonard book that Stephen King had, had a one, one you know, line throwaway comment, you know, read this book, best thing I've ever read type thing. And I thought, well, if I enjoy him and he enjoys Elmore Leonard, I'll give it a go. And, and I don't think I ever really looked back. So probably I've just been consumed by crime fiction ever since with a few divergences into a little bit of espionage, a bit of... Um, had a big Vietnam War phase, sort of memoirs and non-fiction as well, but mainly crime is is the focus. Uh, do you tend to stick with certain authors, your favourites, or uh, do you are you always seeking out a new voice? Or it's, it's probably a com- combination. I do do have some favourite authors that I feel um, a kind of a loyalty to. Um, similarly. Um, so some of the some of the publishers, the likes of Down and Out, All Due Respect, Brash Books, I've sort of crossed paths with them, and they've been um, quite generous towards me. So I've, I've kind of benefited from you know a few freebies coming my way, should we say? But saying that a free a free book's not everything. You, uh, I'm only going to read something if I think I'm going to enjoy it or get something out of it, rather than reading it as as you know a piece of homework or an assignment as such and that that's where i could sort of come from i'm a big collector of books i've bought a lot of books my wife would probably tell you far too many and if if i'm honest i couldn't disagree with her i suppose the, the likes of your, your andrew vax your your richard stark your your westlake your williford you know the, i've i've they're all, they're all sat on the shelf waiting for me. I just There's just not enough time to get to all of them. All right, but if you had to pick a favorite subgenre of crime fiction, uh, what, what would it be? I've got a soft spot for con men, grifters, hit men, um, almost, almost like um, outsider fiction, if you like. I'm, I've enjoyed police procedurals i'm not a massive fan on serial killer type books i'd rather read about um an accidental killing if you like that 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 happens as a consequence of a robbery gone wrong as opposed to the deranged killer type book that you know kills one kills another kills a third just it doesn't often float my boat to be honest well that brings up a a great question um you know are there trends in crime fiction that you're not particularly fond of there's obviously a a readership for for the serial killer type book but with the exception of perhaps john samford who i do enjoy though that said i haven't picked up one of his for a few years um they don't really appeal to me. Um, similarly, there seems to be um, a hell of a lot of covers with a woman sort of walking off into the distance. And, you know, if she's going one way, I'm sort of tempted to go the other way, away from the book, to be truthful. Sorry, but then I think um, perhaps publishers are looking for sure things as opposed to maybe taking risks on books i mean you you probably know it coming from the author side of it as opposed to me as a reader but um certain things just don't grab me but obviously they do grab a big percentage of, of the people buying crime fiction 
uh, for the writers out there that are listening, uh, you know, are there things that writers do in, uh, in, in crime fiction that, uh, that you're just sick of? I'm not a massive fan of food in books. There seems to be an inordinate amount of time given over to people eating. <laughs> I don't know, don't, don't know what that is about, about that, that, that kind of just bugs me. But, um, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm quite. If I, if, if I can get something out of a book, some, enjo- some level of enjoyment. The whole book doesn't have to have worked for me, to, for me to have benefited from it or not regretted reading it. As far as authors doing things I don't particularly like, not, not, not especially. No, no. Sorry. Uh, with all the books that you're reading, the the incredible number of them, um, I have to imagine that uh, for the writer should be grabbing your attention right away. Uh, that that's uh, you know it's often said that that's an important thing to do in writing. Um, but is that is that your experience as a reader? Is that important? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, um, first ten fifteen pages very important. I think. I'll, I'll be honest though. I don't. I don't discard books i don't i haven't not finished a book for a number of years what i tend to do is kind of like if something's not immediate i'll put it down and then maybe pick something else up in place of it and then maybe put put the other one on the back burner read a chapter a day or or, you know 20 pages and then hopefully it will pick up and and the tide will turn and then i'll get back into it but I'm, I suffer a bit of Catholic guilt if I give up on something. <laughs> I kind of, you know, yeah, I, I, I almost need to go to confession or whatever. But you know, that, that's that's just me. Other people have have no qualms whatsoever about throwing the book at the wall or out the window or whatever. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, you are from the UK. Where, whereabouts are you from? Um, Bedfordshire, town town called Leighton Buzzard. We're probably 35 miles north of London, to give you some sort of um, bearing. Leighton Buzzard, famous for the great train robbery about 60 years ago. So living in the UK, are you, do you like UK authors? Are they on your reading list? I, I mean, I know you love American crime fiction, um, but do you have some UK favorites? I, I try and mix up now a lot more than I used to. Once, once upon a time, once I got into my my Leonard's and my um, Robert B. Parker and James Lee Burke, it, it, it was the only place for me to go, to be honest. And then I kind of thought, what? Why do you want to read about where you live? You want you want to read about other places. But then had another sea change insofar as I thought. Well, I'm I'm writing off a whole bunch of great stuff just by definition of where it you know it's geographic location so i kind of expanded a bit i do read more uk than than i used to i'm quite quite partial to a bit of australian crime fiction gary disher david wish wilson um blair denham but yeah, that's it. I, I ought to read more European, but I don't get across the continent very often. <laughs> and um, I've, got, I've got piles of Scandinavian stuff that I just never seem to get to. But, yeah, that is what it is. So who are those uh, UK authors that you uh, enjoy the most then? Um, Paul D. Brazil. Couple of Scottish fellas, Peter Ritchie, Alan Parks, Malcolm Mackay, Paul Heatley. He, he's English. I quite like him. So on Cole's Criminal Library, you uh, rate your books on a five-point scale. Uh, are you giving out many fives? That has to be exceptional to to be a five. Um, probably a dozen hit the mark last year, include, including yourself. I'm. I'm pleased to say um my 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 minimum hope or expectation when i when i open a book is a three and then anything there or above that is a bonus 
but I have a tendency to read what I think I'm going to enjoy. So the ones that don't work for me are very few and far between, thankfully. Well, well ladies and gentlemen, uh, Coleman Keen. Uh, the blog is Cole's Criminal Library. Cole, I want to say thank you uh, for giving us some insight into what it's like to be a super reader and how uh, a reviewer sees the world, uh, or at least how you do. Um, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Frank. It's been a pleasure. All right, uh, Coleman Keen, everyone. Uh, this is the guy, writers, that you definitely want reading your book and giving it a review. He does cut to the heart of the matter. Uh, he's effusive in his praise when he likes it, uh, and he's honest when he doesn't. Um, and uh, I've been on both ends of that. He's read a couple of my things that weren't his favorites and a couple of things that he really dug. And, uh, you know, it's those honest reviews that are critical that uh, make the honest reviews that are uh, full of praise all the more powerful. Uh, so check out Cole's Criminal Library and definitely uh, feel free to follow his advice because uh, whenever I read a review that he's written about anyone, uh, if I've read it, I'm very much in alignment with it. All right, before we move on to the final interview of the episode uh, with Scott Kakawa, I do want to turn things over to the experts. And uh, by experts, I mean folks who know good books. Uh, in the past, I've spoken to bookstore owners, particularly those uh, folks who uh, own or work at the uh, mystery bookstores, the specialty shops, um, and, and other, other people along those lines. Uh, lately, I've been uh, featuring prior guests, uh, authors usually, of course, um, and they always have great recommendations for you. So uh, for this episode, we're going to hear from Joseph Reed, Ryan Sales, and T.G. Wolf. Uh, this is Joe Reed, the author of the Seth Walker series. I'd recommend Lost River, the new one from J. Todd Scott. Uh, he's a 25-year veteran of the DEA, uh, and he takes you right inside the drug war in Angel, Kentucky, a place that he knows very well uh, in his latest thriller. So pick that one up if you have the chance. Lost River, J. Todd Scott. Hi, my name is Ryan Sales. I'm the author of the Richard Dean Buckner trilogy and uh, the forthcoming It's Ugly Because It's Personal. And I want to take a minute to recommend my friend Grant Jerkins' 2012 book, The Ninth Step. In The Ninth Step, it, uh, it's about a teacher named Edgar Woolrich, who is he's just driving down the road and a car sideswipes him or something. They get to an accident and Edgar's wife passes away. Uh, we meet the driver of that car is a woman named Helen, who, uh, who was drunk at the time. And uh, she used that as kind of her recovery. And then the book puts the two of them together in kind of a, in an anonymous way. But the, the book takes some very dark turns, which I just I was just blown away by uh, some great twists. And it's, it's one of those books where, like, uh, as things just kind of spiral down towards the end, um, you as a reader are like, wow, this is this is a great twist. And then all of a sudden he does it one more time. And uh, you're just kind of blown away and you're, you've got three, four pages left. And the next thing you know, he does it a third time. Uh, and so the whole thing all the way up to the last page is just, it's, it's nail biting, it's tense, but he's excellent paced. Uh, I, I can't recommend enough. It's a quick read, but at the same time, uh, it's fully fleshed out. Uh, and it's, 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 a, it's a powerful book. It's, it's very entertaining. So Grant Jerkins, The Ninth Step. My name is Ryan Sales. Thank you very much. Hi, this is T.G. Wolf, Down and Out Books author of the De La Cruz series and the Diamond series. If you're interested in a blast from the past, I highly recommend breaking out Mark Twain and reading Tom Sawyer, Detective. In this hilarious mystery, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn track their way through Arkansas to solve, yes, a murder. It's one of the first and it's one of the best. Okay, folks, there you go. Uh, I've said it before, but I will say it again. Writers know good books. So your tastes may vary, but where quality is concerned, if another writer tells you a book's a good book, odds are uh, it's going to be a good book. Uh, so uh, take, take those under advisement. Uh, let's move on to the final interview of this episode, and that is with Scott Kakawa, 
Um, Scott is based in Hawaii, uh, where he uh, works in the uh, law enforcement field. I'll let him tell you more about that. And he's a longtime uh, supporter of the show. So I was really glad to uh, have someone who is a listener come on as an author and get to talk about his book. Uh, His book is set uh, in the pre-statehood decade uh, in Hawaiian history, uh, which was fascinating to me uh, because uh, it isn't something that I've heard a lot about or know virtually anything about. Um, And so uh, having a, a crime fiction series, a detective series set in that era uh, seems like a cool idea, but we'll let Scott tell you more about that uh, during this interview. Well, hey, Scott, welcome to the show. Hi, Frank. Uh, It's an honor to be here. Uh, I love your show. This is my traffic uh, survival uh, thing to listen to wrong place, right crime. A few people know, but in Honolulu, we have some of the worst traffic in the nation. Well, I'm happy to be there with you. Uh, And I think I mentioned you in a show one time, and I I believe I pronounced your name wrong because it is Scott Kakawa. Yeah, that's close enough. Yeah, I say Kikawa. If it's a proper Japanese pronunciation, it's Kikawa, uh, but nobody says that here. Only in Japan am I called that, and I'm not in Japan. All all three Ks get pronounced in the Japanese then, huh? Yes, all three Ks. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned before we went on the show that this was your first uh, podcast interview in, in relation to your first book. So that's that's an, that's my honor to be your first. Uh, we'll, we'll try to be gentle here. Um, so, <laughs> well, so before we talk about your book, which is, is uh, entitled Kona Wins, just a quick bit of background about you so people can kind of have an idea where you're coming from. You do live in Hawaii, right? Uh, you just mentioned the, the traffic. Yes, I, um, I'm fourth generation Japanese American from Honolulu. My family has been in Hawaii for over 100 years now. Wow. Uh, I'm that far removed from Japan, uh, not just linguistically, but um, in terms of time and distance. I wish I were closer. Uh, the, Japan's got a lot of fascinating culture and food mm-hmm. and things like that. Uh, and unfortunately, every time I go to the mainland, People ask me if I speak the language. I don't. Uh, I read just very, very little, enough to for comic books because I was forced to take the class in high school. You know, every state or certainly every region of the United States, uh, you know, has its own subculture. Uh, definitely uh, Hawaii would fall into that category. And I, I always like to ask, you know, what, what elements of, of Hawaiian culture or the culture of Hawaii do you you know, experience the most, you like the most, appreciate the most? Oh, absolutely. Uh, We are a very, very different place. And I would say probably maybe the most different you'll find uh, in the United States. We have our own literature here, a regional literature. You know, a lot of people talk about things like Southern Gothic or um, New England literature, Ours is very, very unique. Uh, for one thing, it utilizes Pidgin English or what people have come to call Hawaii Creole, which is a very unique dialect. Um, I love uh, the sensibility and the cadence of it when I read poetry or prose in that type of language. And uh, the food here is very different, I think, from from elsewhere. Uh, I think we're the original fusion cuisine. Uh, we, we've had it for over 100 years where immigrants and native Hawaiians and uh, finally the Americans uh, who had come to uh, annex and then uh, turn this place into a territory and state have all contributed to that aspect of it, as well as other aspects. So it's a really, really interesting place to be. And I think probably the best place uh, in, the, in the whole country. Well, you've stayed there, and that's uh, that's saying something. And I think you probably would have had ample opportunity to leave if you'd like to, because you work for a, a law enforcement organization that you know pretty much you could go anywhere uh, that the United States uh, has a border. Yes, I'm. I work for United States Customs and Border Protection, and there have been opportunities to go elsewhere, especially the headquarters. Uh, to Washington, D.C. and the surrounding area, I found, and this is no offense to anybody from the D.C. area, that I didn't really care for Washington, D.C. itself. I love the people there. Uh, I love the food there. 
I love um, kind of the history there, but I didn't really care for the culture of the city uh, in terms of government. And one thing that kind of creeped me about out about all of Washington, D.C. was it kind of reminded me of a large cemetery. You know, all the monuments and, and uh, Arlington across the river, it, it, it seemed like everything was uh, um, kind of a testament to a dead person. And uh, in doses, that's fine, but it, it seemed like every block was like that. Uh, but it didn't seem like the kind of place that I would like to work. Hawaii's home for me, and I uh, will stay here uh, the rest of my career. And that must be nice to be able to have your career, not just uh, where you grew up, but where your family is, your extended family. Oh, absolutely. I have a family of my own, and I do not know how journeymen, uh, officers, and other folks who move from place to place really raise a family without the kind of extended support that I've come to know. And uh, there's a support network for everything. Uh, I, I don't know how people do it uh, without that. Well, hopefully that support network has been in place uh, as you have written and published your first book. Uh, Kona Wins is the name of the book. I, like you, I, I wrote uh, some of my uh, books while I was you know, actively in law enforcement. And I think that's a tricky thing to do because you want to be careful you don't trod on the feet of your career or the people that you work with or the organization that you're, you know, that you're part of. I, I avoided that by making up a city um, and, and using a pen name and, and kind of distancing myself that way for, for a while. Um, you've solved it in another way. And that is uh, you've gone into the past. Yes. You know, my occupation, um, a lot of people ask, but my occupation had nothing to do with uh, inspiring me to write what I wrote. The protagonist, yes, is also a law enforcement officer, but as you stated, it, this was uh, 70 years in the past. The funny thing is that uh, when, where we met, Frank, you and I at the ill-fated left coast crime <laughs> of last year, the, 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 the one-day convention. The brief coast crime? <laughs> <laughs> I love that, brief coast. Yeah, uh, where we met there. Uh, you know, I was supposed to be on a panel on the last day on police procedurals. And I thought that was a little misplaced because I've never thought of what I wrote as a police procedural. I, I think maybe they put it in there just because a protagonist was a police detective, but I kind of think of my work as an anti-procedural. Back in the 1950s, and especially in the territory of Hawaii, and you know as a, law, a former law enforcement officer, Frank, that a lot of what governs what we do professionally as law enforcement officers are precedent court decisions, um, kind of governing uh, our actions, and I know that's really hot today. Uh, but uh, back in the 50s, uh, uh, th this was before a lot of those landmark decisions. This was before Gideon versus Wainwright. Uh, this was before Miranda versus Arizona. Uh, there, there was no such thing as Miranda rights back in the 1950s. And unfortunately, um, you know, cops did things like beat confessions out of suspects. They weren't supposed to but it happened. Uh, some would argue it happened after that as well. But um, I, I try to put some of what was reflective of actual police culture back then, and it has nothing to do, uh, at, at least um, on a procedural basis, with what happened today. I, I think today law enforcement has become extremely professionalized, uh, despite uh, what you might hear in the media. I think law enforcement has become kind of a, a place where a, a thinking person has to be in that occupation in order to uh, to do it within its guidelines. I, I think that maybe 70 years ago or, or more, that maybe wasn't the case. So uh, yeah, I would, I would hesitate to call what I write a police procedural. Well, set the scene for me here. Um, this, this is a, a murder mystery it takes place in Honolulu in 1953. Now, I am going to admit to just a little bit of ignorance here. I don't remember what year Hawaii became a state. I know it was right around there, but I don't recall the year. What year was that? <laughs> you're, you're real close. I, it was in 1959 where Hawaii okay. became a state. So this is pre-statehood, and so it would be considered a, a protectorate or, or, or territory at the time? Yes, it was considered U.S. territory. And I specifically set this book 
and the other books I've written that will follow in the territorial period, people might know a little bit about Hawaiian history where Hawaii at one point was an actual sovereign kingdom. The queen was deposed back uh, at the turn of the last century, I believe it was in the 1890s, and a provisional government was set up. It became a republic for a handful of years, and then the U.S. annexed it, and it became a U.S. territory up until 1959, where it became a state. A, a lot of territorial history of Hawaii is glossed over in popular culture. Uh, a lot of people, thankfully, know about the unlawful overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy, um, thanks to raised awareness, thanks to scholars who have come forward. But few people know about the years that followed uh, leading up to statehood. And for those of us who are neither native Hawaiian nor Haole or white, the territorial years were kind of our crucible struggle. And I'm talking about all the immigrants who came from places like Portugal, actually it was the Azores, but they're Portuguese, places like China, Japan, Korea, the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and um, came to work on the, the sugar plantations. It was an interesting time of labor strife and imperfect race relations. And a lot of people really don't know that. Uh, but, but the territorial period, I think, is really interesting. And it's really a, a noir period that, that few people know about. And into this uh, morass of, of uh, illegality and racial tension comes your, your protagonist. And, and can you tell me about him? Yes, uh, my protagonist is uh, Francis Yoshikawa, Frankie Yoshikawa. They call him a sheik. Uh, it was one of those things where a lot of Japanese Americans would get these nicknames and they were based on syllables, like the, the truncating of syllables of their, of their last names or their first names because they were so long very often. And sheik is just one of those syllables in Yoshikawa, which is his surname. And uh, he is a veteran of World War II. He fought in the uh, fabled 442nd regimental combat team. This was just like Mr. Miyagi. Yes, just like Mr. Miyagi. Absolutely. <laughs> it, you know, they, they were the most heavily decorated uh, of, mm -hmm. of all American military units for a very long time. And it, it's one of those things. Uh, it was a conscious decision to make him uh, a veteran of that unit because there was a trade off, I think, between Japanese American service to country during World War II when, uh, when the United States was fighting a war with Japan and the kind of prosperity uh, that followed uh, after World War II. So it was kind of like uh, they're, they're buying the American dream in blood. And uh, that's, that's part of the background I wanted for this character. He took advantage of the GI Bill and went to Columbia University uh, which a lot of uh, a lot of 442nd and 100th Battalion members did. Um, this was a, a kind of a critical point uh, for Japanese Americans and their own history because it was an opportunity for them to receive uh, a top-notch education in the United States, courtesy of Uncle Sam, uh, thanks to their service, and to start to change things, especially in Hawaii, where at the time they made up 40% of the population. Uh, the Nisei are the second generation, in, in other words, those born uh, on the soil here, were U.S. citizens by birth, and they were coming into their own about this time where they became a large part of the electorate, and they changed the face of politics in Hawaii because they were able to vote, because they were able to run for office and hold office. So th that's kind of the background of my protagonist, is that he kind of... Uh, is a stand-in for most uh, Japanese-American males, or maybe what is typical of, of those who went overseas, came back, and, uh, and tried to set themselves up professionally. There's a particular, I don't know, irony might be a soft word for it, but you know, you have these, these soldiers who fought uh, extraordinarily brave, bravely and were, were very successful in, in, their, in the missions that they were asked to accomplish. Many of them had family and relatives who were in internment camps back in the United States. I mean, it's uh, the, the dichotomy of those two things is just, uh, it's difficult to rectify with a 2021 brain. 
Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, that's in a lot of ways. And in college, when I was in college, I was actually an Islamic studies major. Uh, it was a strange major for a boy from Hawaii to have, but I, I was always interested in an area of the world that was neither East Asia nor Europe because we got a lot of that uh, growing up, but we didn't have much of what was in between. And it's caused me personally to have a lot of uh, empathy for Muslim Americans after 9-11. Uh, and that's because the, it's, it's almost directly analogous to what happened to Japanese Americans during World War II, uh, where you have a lot of sentiment uh, that's anti-old country because that's what your country happens to be at war with. You have that face, you have that culture, and in a lot of cases that language and it's a really, really tough spot to be in. Uh, a, a lot of what we know today is Japanese uh, now in America. People think of Japan and they think of the kind of the first world uh, economically prosperous country and the people who come here from Japan, whether they're tourists or immigrants, uh, all happen to be uh, of that wealthy class. And it was not always the case. Uh, it, in fact, uh, my own ancestors came dirt poor, and a lot of people seem to forget that about Japan. What kind of struggles or obstacles does Frankie Yoshikawa run into during his investigation? Uh, because he is investigating a murder. Yes, uh, and a lot of the struggles or the obstacles uh, were real back then, and uh they were they were very kind of like uh, those obstacles you see in a lot of noir writing or or hard boiled writing. Um, I, I'm a I'm a Chandler nut. Uh, I kind of grew up reading Raymond Chandler and and idolizing his prose. And uh, a lot of this is kind of like the small guy versus the uh, system, or, or 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 the big machine, or uh, you know, big government, big money, whatever it is. And in Hawaii. You had this oligarchy, uh, historically they called it the Big Five. Those are five large sugar-owning concerns. Uh, back then, uh, Hawaii's cash cow was agriculture and it was uh, sugarcane. And uh, a lot of what this detective faces is because one of the suspects is uh, um, a child of one of these large sugar-owning uh, families, um, he runs into uh, the resistance and the kind of obstacles you imagine one would find uh, when they're going up against uh, somebody of privilege uh, who kind of has a uh, establishment protection. Kind of a Chinatown sort of thing, it sounds like. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you mentioned earlier that you uh, really admire um, uh, the the Hawaiian style of pidgin English, the Hawaiian Creole did you employ that uh, when you wrote this? Uh, I did not, you know, and that was a conscious decision of me not to put that in there for a lot of reasons. Uh, the, but the, the, the biggest reason of which is that I don't do it well enough. You know, uh, I received for most of my life um, kind of an education here growing up where pidgin English was discouraged in the classroom. And my parents, although they spoke it, uh, fairly freely discouraged me from speaking it. They wanted me to sound uh, more like someone who speaks proper English uh, because they thought it would limit my opportunities uh, educationally, uh, professionally in the future. And the irony is that uh, I grew up not speaking it very well. And um, it, it really sounds terrible if I try to put it on the page. Uh, I think that the people in my book do speak it, but I, um, I, I hope I convey that or it comes across as the pigeon inflections are implied rather than written on the page. You know, I think uh, uh, a good example of that is uh, um, True Grit, the novel uh, is kind of written that way where it, it kind of stays within uh, what we know as proper English, but you can almost get the implied uh, um, accent out of it. Fill your hand, you son of a bitch. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And a lot of people speak proper English, but they do it with the inflection, 
you know, they do with the pronunciation and the inflection. Pidgin, in a lot of ways today, I think, uh, or Hawaii Creole, if you want to be technical about it, is all about an economy of syllables. That's the way I look at it, where they truncate everything and they uh, make everything very, very brief. And, uh, and, and I think it's really artful because I think that a lot of these folks come across or they can convey in maybe three syllables what it would take uh, most normal people uh, four sentences. Yeah, or a dozen in my case. <laughs> so uh, Kona Wins is, is the first book with Frankie Yoshikawa. What's, what's coming up next? I mean, do you have more uh, adventures for him or do you have other, other books or both? Yeah, right now, uh, I like to tell people that my lack of imagination limits me to one protagonist. Um, I, I write in the first person, and it's because it's kind of a cheat. It's because I don't like to uh, portray the world through the the perspective of multiple individuals. Uh, I can just uh, present everything through the lens of one guy. Uh, so for at least for the time being, all my stories have the same protagonist. And uh, the next book, Red Dirt, comes out this fall sometime. Right now we're in copy edits, uh, I think, uh, from Bamboo Ridge Press. And uh, it's got the same detective, uh, Frankie Yoshikawa. And uh, this one is set against the backdrop of the House Un-American Activities Committee's uh, Uh anti-communist investigations. They were very active here in Honolulu for a period in the early 50s. And a lot of people don't know that. But, uh, uh, of course, labor union uh, leaders, organizers were the focal point of those investigations. So this story is set against that backdrop. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's fascinating. I, I would not have guessed that until you mentioned labor unions and then it, then it all kind of, kind of clicks together. Yeah. And, you know, um, it, it does have a racial element to it because – Although a lot of the uh, primary organiza- uh, organizers were Howley or they were white from the mainland and uh, maybe from far afield as Australia who came to help organize the labor. The labor was for the most part uh, non-white. It was all Asian and, uh, and Polynesian. And most of the leaders of those indigenous communities, or, 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 or I should say those uh, communities within the plantations uh, were of those groups. So the vast majority of the suspects in a lot of the House Un-American Activities Committee uh, probes were were non-white, so it does it does take some racial overtones. But the book itself uh, really incorporates that, uh, and it's more uh, ancillary to the, the the murders that take place uh, in the book. Well, the book that is out now, Kona Wins by Scott Kakawa. And he's going to be following this up with Red Dirt later this year. Check it out. Uh, Scott, I hope that we can uh, maybe actually raise a glass at a conference here maybe later this year. Uh, Things seem to be loosening up. And uh, I was glad I met you at Left Coast Crime, but we didn't get a chance to to hang out very much. So hopefully that'll change. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I sure look forward to it, Frank. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. All right, folks, uh, Scott Kakawa there, who, uh, like I said, is a friend of the podcast and who I was fortunate enough to meet briefly at Left Coast Crime uh, before that uh, conference was unfortunately canceled for COVID-19 in uh, March of uh, 2020. You know, I often hear people say, yeah, I want something new. I want something fresh, whether that's an agent or a publisher looking to to uh, get something out there or a reader wanting to experience it. And so I think uh, what Scott's written definitely falls into that category. Uh, it's uh, different enough to, to be fresh and to be something uh, you can try out that isn't your tried and true uh, setting, but at the same time, it has the elements uh, that you're familiar with and that you uh, enjoy, which is the reason you read crime fiction in the first place. Uh, so uh, pick up Kona Wins and give it a read and tell Scott I sent you. All right, on the next episode of Wrong Place, Right Crime, we're going to talk to Sean Riley Simmons, who is based uh, in Maryland, about 45 minutes outside of D.C., Baltimore area. Uh, and she uh, does a lot of things. She writes some short stories uh, and has a series, the Red Carpet Catering Mystery Series Uh, that has kind of a neat premise where uh, the uh, main character is a chef with a catering business that uh, caters to uh, film sets. And so 
uh, we had a great conversation uh, about her experiences uh, that led to that book and a lot of other experiences. Uh, she is a very engaging and easy to listen to person. Uh, so the time we had together flew right along, and uh, I think the, that it will for you as well. So check that out, Sean Riley Simmons, on uh, the next episode of Wrong Place, Right Crime. All right, I want to say a lot of thank yous on this episode. I want to say thanks to Down Out Books for sponsoring the program. I want to say thank you to Sandra Wells for being the lead-off guest, to Coleman Keane for coming on the show in the first place. It's not really in his wheelhouse, and he sounded great, but uh, thanks for doing it, Cole. And uh, lastly, to Scott Kakawa for being a great listener and uh, for writing an interesting book and uh, for being a great guest uh, and batting cleanup. Uh, thanks for doing that, Scott. Also, I want to say thanks to... Joseph Reed, Ryan Sales, and T.G. Wolf for dropping some great recommendations. And of course, to you, the listener, uh, where all of this ends up, if it wasn't going into your ear holes when everything is all said and done, uh, well, then it'd just basically be white noise, wouldn't it? Thanks for coming along on the ride and being part of this. Uh, we've got nine more episodes this season, uh, and the next one is with Sean Riley Simmons. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you. That sometimes you gotta be in the wrong place to write crime.